Welcome to this week's installment of Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra in the History Department. And I am Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. This week we are being joined by Rushika Haig, who is teaching with us in the Humanities Program. We're going to talk a little bit about Aquinas, but several other medieval subjects and topics as well. So stay tuned for the next 20 minutes or so. Today we are joined by Rushika Haig, who will be talking to us about a lot of things, the medieval period, Aquinas. I don't exactly know what we're going to talk about today, so this is going to be a fun one. Big surprise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Professor Haig has been with us before to talk about the Aeneid, uh, and right now we're going to be reading Aquinas, talking about the medieval period. We're about to move into medieval spirituality. So I wanted to begin as one medievalist to another, asking you about you're a medievalist. What drew you to the medieval period? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think I was first drawn to the medieval period when I was in high school. And I liked the otherness of it. Um, I like to use the quote, I always forget who it's by, that, you know, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. I think that is incredibly true of the Middle Ages. It's has an otherness, a strangeness that's compelling. It's There's echoes of things that are so similar that we understand, Mm -hmm. and yet there are things that they do and the way that they view the world that is just so completely different. And you can point to it and say, well, look, university is the reason why we're all here. That Mm -hmm. comes out of the Middle Ages. But then there's also this enchanted element to it. And I think that's actually what draws me to it is that it's a world that's very peopled with spirits. And there's an idea that the veils between the worlds are very thin. Mm-hmm. And we live in a relentlessly post-Cartesian world where we want to, you know, show me the evidence, show me the proof. And one of the other things, and you mentioned this in your lecture, that I like about the Middle Ages is that there aren't these separations that mm-hmm. we have, that they don't think there's any contradiction between doing philosophy and theology and science mm-hmm. all together. Right. And obviously that has some problems, but there's something about it that I think we can actually return to and draw on that maybe some of these separations are a little artificial and maybe we should have these disciplines talking to each other more. Mm -hmm. So now you're engaged in a big research project. Could you say a little bit more about where your interest in the Middle Ages has taken you in terms of your more specific research project? Hmm. All right. So I started out um, being interested in medieval Spain um, in the three cultures there, Jews, Mm -hmm. Christians, and Muslims together, and um, sort of from there moved into early travel, early contacts with Africa, trade. And so now I've ended up in the Mediterranean, and I'm looking at a map, maps in general and trade. And it's a portland chart, which was used by sailors. It's done by a Genoese man, and it's a late Hmm. um, chart. And it's very elaborate and very beautiful. But he's looking back at the Genoese um, and their empire, really, because they had a massive trading empire, and they had outposts in the Black Sea, Mm -hmm. um, through which they have the dubious distinction of having brought the Black Death to Europe. But 
at this late period, he's looking back at this point where the Genoese sort of ruled the waters. And he's trying to say some things about who they were and their identity Mm -hmm. and um, where, where they're going now. Okay, great. Well, and I'm interested. So Carrie talked a lot about a sort of philosopher's perspective on Aquinas. So I'm changing gears here a little Mm. bit. But I'm curious as to what do you take away from Aquinas as a historian? For for a historian, what is important to you about Aquinas? Well, I think the most important thing for a medieval historian is Aquinas really is the one who synthesizes Aristotle and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And before we started this, we were talking about Peter Abelard. Right. And... I think it, you can't possibly overestimate the impact of Aristotle on the intellectual community in the medieval West. Mm-hmm. It really was a revolution, and it shook up universities, which hadn't been going very long mm-hmm. at this point. And so it really shook the understanding of knowledge and how we understand the world and how we even know what we know. And so there's really hundreds of years where they're just trying to wrestle with Aristotle and figure out what they can use and what's compatible compatible with Christianity and what's not. All that comes together in Aquinas. And mm-hmm. he's the one who works it all out and sort of smooths out all the, all the rough edges in some ways. Mm-hmm. And he makes it workable and usable. Mm-hmm. And does so in a way that's safe. Right. What do you mean by that, Carrie? Well, so there were others, right? Obviously, Aquinas is one of many people who mm-hmm. are wrestling with with Aristotle, and he's the most famous. And I would argue it's because he did it well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were kind of three approaches to um, adopting, absorbing, using all of this information coming in from the Arabic world and all of these Aristotelian texts, but also all of the Arabic commentaries, the Islamic philosophy that was coming alongside of it. And so one approach was um, taken by Bonaventure. And Bonaventure actually protested against excessive philosophical daring. (laughs) So he's your sort of classic conservative. Um, Let's just stick with safe Augustinian interpretations of scripture. It's been working for a really long time. Kind of the Tertullian of the Middle Mm -hmm. Ages. Okay. Yep, of the later Middle Middle Ages. And then you've got um, a group called the Latin Averroists, and we call them that now. It's a pejorative term. These are the ones who loved Aristotle and thought, you know what, if church doctrine and Aristotle disagree, who cares? Go with Mm. Aristotle. Aristotle had it right. Um, And so they advocated that the world was eternal, that there was only one soul, one human soul for all of us, so no individual immortality, things like this. And we're trying to be true to Aristotle and Aristotelian science regardless of what happened. So that was the sort of the radical wing. And then you have Aquinas representative of this we can use it, but we have to be cautious. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what manages to make it through. And that ends up really influencing the Catholic doctrine at that point. Yeah, there's actually a whole document that's issued that's called the Condemnations of Paris. Mm-hmm. That is a whole list of Aristotelian ideas that are flat out. We, yep. we, we cannot accept these. These are not good. Mm-hmm. And it's things that contradict with are you know the churches and Christian understanding of God, mm-hmm. and so Aristotle has some ideas about um, you know that that 
if you really take them to their end, show that God is actually limited and not all okay. powerful. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole list yeah. of them. And some of them are pretty interesting. They are. One of my favorite ones is one, if you read through it, it basically ends up almost arguing that there is a possibility of life on other planets. Yes. Because um, if you take the Aristotelian proposition, it says, you know, this is sort of finite, it's full plenum. And that, and they say, well, we can't really accept that because we know that God is infinite and omniscient. And so we can't say what we know. And there might be other possibilities oh. out there. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, obviously, they probably weren't really thinking about life on other planets. But if you read through it, that's really what they're mm-hmm. saying. They're saying we do not know the universe that God created. It's mm-hmm. kind of breathtaking, actually. Yeah. yeah. And there are like, I think, 219 propositions condemned, something like that. And actually, some of Aquinas's propositions got, I think, misinterpreted and put in there as well. But it's a pretty systematic and huge condemnation of a lot of bad, what was seen as bad Aristotelian ideas. Well, and, and Peter ideas. Abelard gets mm-hmm. in trouble for some of his use of Aristotle, too, yeah. besides his, you know way with the ladies. Um, it's not just that that gets him in trouble. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I think you need to expand on the way with the ladies there. Okay. Sure. So, <laughs> so before we started, we were talking about um, Peter Abelard, who was a teacher at the University of Paris. He was amazing. He um, Students would flock to his lectures, standing room only, mm-hmm. people you know, waiting outside the door to get in. We can just dream as professors of such a reception. <laughs> and we do. And we do. Um, and some of us may have it. I mean, I don't know. But um, so he is very taken with the Aristotelian learning. And he writes this whole um, giant book called Sick et Non, Yes and No in Latin. And he goes through Aristotelian propositions. But he was also staying um, at the house of a canon um, of uh, the cathedral. And the canon had a young, brilliant, and beautiful niece staying with him who he thought, hey, wouldn't it be nice if she could get more learning? And um, so he has Aristotle tutoring her, um, Aristotle Abelard tutoring her. Well, you know, one thing leads to another. And um, before uh-huh. you know it, they're in love. And, and she's pregnant. And she's pregnant oh, and maybe secretly married, which really probably shouldn't have happened because he was actually in minor, minor orders of the church. Mm. Um, her uncle, when he finds out about all this, is infuriated and sends his henchmen to um, castrate Abelard, who goes off to become a monk and... Eloise goes off to become a nun. Mm-hmm. Um, their son, they decide to name Astrolabe, which was a um, navigational instrument in the Middle Ages. And um, as I said before, I once read someone who said this is the reason why academics shouldn't be allowed to name their children. Uh, so, Do we know what happens to Astrolabe? Um I don't what know. does happen to him? Oh. I, I know he grows to be a young man. Um, okay. there, he comes and visits his mother at one point. Oh. She becomes the abbess of her convent. Of convent yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, and and that. So we know about a lot of this because um, Eloise and Abelard write these beautiful mm-hmm. letters to each other, and um, mm-hmm. and you can also read his own autobiography, Abelard's autobiography, where he recounts all of the calamitous tales. Um, of this period of his life as he's learning. And again, Abelard is before the full rediscovery of Aristotle. So he's only working with this really limited Aristotelian logic, which makes him 
I think, even more impressive. Um, at the point where Abelard is around, he literally has a few glosses on some ancient Aristotelian okay. logic, and that's it. Um, and he's still doing this magnificent philosophy. And did you say that in your Latin class, Carrie, that you're having students translate some of Abelard's work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So including the castration scene? In, including of the castration scene. So for those 20 of you who are going to be in Latin in the spring, you have that to look forward to. Mm. And you get to read his own perceptions of what a hot and incredible man he was. Like he has, he's, a, he's got a good sense of self. He's very confident. Indeed. Well, sounds like fun holiday reading. Mm-hmm. Were you going to say something there, Rishika? No. Okay. I just, he just, just makes me smile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These medieval figures are very, very interesting. They are. They're just, so many of them are just larger than life mm-hmm. and just so, such interesting people. Well, we get to read Julian mm-hmm. a yes. little bit and she's something else too. She just is something yes. else. Indeed. Yeah. So I also, re- related to these larger than life figures, um, there are so many to choose from and- Rushika and I were lamenting on Monday that it's so horrible to spend less than half of the semester on the medieval period when it's a thousand years long. It just seems horrible that we have to truncate it so much. And so the other team doesn't do Aquinas. Instead, they do Anselm. Oh. And so this is going to be your first time teaching Aquinas's Summa. Um, would you be willing to talk a little bit about what what it difference that makes or well, if it makes a difference. Let's or? talk about Anselm first. Yeah. So let's talk about Anselm and then you can talk about how different it is to teach Aquinas versus Anselm. Or, Do you mind saying a little bit about okay. Anselm? So what? Anselm is earlier than Aquinas. What is he, about 200 years earlier? Is that it? Sam is yeah. shaking his head 250 years. years. Yeah. So um, he's originally Italian, but he ends up as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he is one of the earlier, um, you know, sort of philosophers and theologians. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to work out some ideas about atonement that we're going to read. But also, um, his ontological proof for the existence of God is really one of the famous proofs um, for the existence of God. I I find that students find it to be a little bit of a circle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and that's sort of maybe the the problem with it mm-hmm. um and so you know his idea that well you know we can if we can conceive of this being that's greater than nothing else then therefore that means i mean it sort of ends up saying you know therefore that means you know god must exist and it's like well Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it's very influential, and it's revisited later yeah. by Enlightenment philosophers. Um, so it, he's heading in sort of some interesting directions and heading in in a way of, you know, how can we logically go through this and come up with a proof, mm-hmm. which then, of course, is revisited Um Aquinas is much more systematic, though I wouldn't, it, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not systematic philosophy really quite yet, but it's much more systematic. Okay. And this is sort of the attraction of Aquinas because I, th- I think in some ways it connects him to Augustine in that Augustine is always looking for his intellect to be satisfied mm-hmm. by Christianity. Well, Thomas kind of does that. Okay. He mm-hmm. takes all that and he's like, okay, these, we can go through anything. We can come up with a logical way to go through all these questions. And that's one of the things I admire about Aquinas is that pretty much 
any theological question that you could possibly come up with, he's probably thought about and come up with an idea of what to do about it and what the logical thing to do about it is. Yet at the same time, he does ultimately say that what we really need is just God's grace. Hmm. And, you know, there's sort of this famous vision he has at the Mm -hmm. end of his life where of just God's love and grace and that, you know, all his work next to that is is almost meaningless. Mm -hmm. Is as straw. Yeah, is as straw. Mm -hmm. Wow. Is what he says. And then he dies the next day or two days later or something. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, um, interestingly, I did get to see his remains. Hmm. Um, his I relics. Did, did you? Okay, this so, summer. Huh. Oh my goodness. Uh, all right. So did I. So um, apparently we were both in Toulouse. Yes. <laughs> and so um, Thomas Aquinas's body minus his thumb is buried in the Church of the Jacobins in mm-hmm. Toulouse. Jacobins is another name for the Dominicans. It's the French okay. mm-hmm. French term for the Dominicans. And so it, it's a little odd because the church has been deconsecrated. Um, but they still have him there. Um, they have his body and then his head under the altar. Yeah. What What do you mean by this? Like, are you walking into the church and seeing like a mummified version of the guy's no. body? I mean, what is, what's happening here? No. I mean, there's sort of a raised area where his grave is, but you can't okay. see the body itself. Okay. Because I'm starting to feel a little heaved out, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and then under the altar, there's a gold box mm-hmm. okay. that has his okay. head in it. So your traditional yeah. kind of relic storage yes. thing. Okay, yes. that makes um, me feel a little a little better, better. about that. Yes. Um, Where is his thumb? His thumb is in Milan. And um, do we know how that happened? I mean, he taught there for a while. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he was actually originally there, okay. um, and that's where he died, I believe. Mm-hmm. And oh. then they decide to transfer him to sort of the the mother church of okay. the Dominicans in mm-hmm. France. But the Milanese kept his thumb because he wrote large parts of the Summa there. Okay, mm-hmm. and so they actually have his thumb. Wow. Well, and we'll talk a little bit about this, I think, in no, we future will, lectures, we, we will, like what the point of relics are. We will oh, definitely sure. talk about relics because I think it's an important thing to understand, an interesting thing to understand, a thing that maybe horrifies and confuses people a little bit, mm-hmm. but was a huge part of the medieval spiritual world. Yeah. Hmm. That is very interesting. Wow. Um, I will just say, too, so I am not a medievalist. But one of the things that is interesting to me listening to both you lecture and then to hear you guys just even talk about this, first of all, is the amount of travel that people Mm -hmm. did. The fact that, again, just bodies are even being able to be shipped. Like in my own small mind, it's unbelievable to me that in a time before like modern kinds of developments in transportation that people got around so much. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing that strikes me about the way that you talk about this especially Spain being an example of this, but you talked about this too in your lecture, Mm -hmm. is the ways in which Christianity is coexisting Mm -hmm. with like even two different versions within itself, with the West and the East, Mm -hmm. with the Muslim world, Mm -hmm. that again, without the Muslim world, we might not have had um, Aristotle in the hands of someone like Thomas Aquinas Mm -hmm. to the extent that we did, that actually when the Muslims took over in certain areas, like, they allowed for mm-hmm. Christianity to continue. This mm-hmm. was something that I reminded my husband of. Like there was some somewhat 
um, peaceful coexistence mm-hmm. that they taxed Christians, but otherwise did not force them to convert. Same right. with the Jews. I mean, so this is part of the story, like in a Western focused humanities course, we sometimes lose. But I think that emphasis is just important to note that yeah. there's a lot of interaction mm-hmm. That it's not always conquest. It will be. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the big misperceptions about the Middle Ages is Mm -hmm. that it's a very interconnected world. I mean, Mm -hmm. the big push now is to teach the global Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it is kind of the global Middle Ages already if you're teaching it properly. I mean, there's so much interconnect. The Genoese have trading outposts in North Africa starting in the early 11th century. And so there's just a high degree of connectivity and interaction and a lot of it's through trade Mm -hmm. but there is a big exchange and spain is one of the places where that happens Mm -hmm. um later on constantinople is one of the places that that happens and so yeah there are these places where uh there is a relatively peaceful coexistence. You always talk about the the Caliphate of Cordoba in Spain. Of mm-hmm. course, there are there are other other examples other too. Bad, I mean, yeah. one of it, Carrie and I'm sure feel like we wish we could do a whole class on the Crusades because that's mm-hmm. a whole thing. But we whiz by it in five minutes, much as we do in CWC, <laughs> and do the best we can. But one of the reasons that um, the Crusades happens is because the Muslims are pushing on the Byzantine Empire Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the Byzantine emperor sends a letter to the Pope and says, please come help help us, us. Mm -hmm. please. And then the other thing, other two things are pilgrims are being attacked on the way to Jerusalem and the person, the Muslim commander in charge of Jerusalem does actually burn down the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. So, I mean, there's, it it shifts. There Mm -hmm. are areas of cooperation and peace, and then there are moments where things sort of spike and explode, Mm -hmm. too. And so it's, but it's very dynamic. Yes. And that's a great word. And diverse. Yeah. It's an interesting and not, we tend to teach it very simply, and it's a very complicated, diverse world. All the more reason to spend some time maybe reading about Mm -hmm. the Middle Ages. Mm So, Um, Rushika, um, Books on well, first you could talk about books that you think about when you think about Thomas Aquinas, but also we're obviously very interested in how the chicken book turned out and <laughs> whether or not you've got something else on the uh, nightstand. Chicken book. The chicken book is just excellent and wonderful. Um, you might never want to eat chicken again after you read it, though. But um, my favorite part of the chicken book that I don't think I mentioned, well, I was just I hadn't gotten to it yet, is there was a, a, a whole push to get the chickens as we know them today with, you know, nice, full, meaty chickens. And they actually held a contest. There was this guy who won the chicken contest. He was selectively breeding his chickens. But the most bizarre part was they did sort of this ad campaign that was in the 50s, and it called the chickens the sweater girls of the barnyard. Okay. (laughs) Think think that is self-explanatory, audience. (laughs) That is self-explanatory. So what else is on your nightstand? I'm trying to start a book about... um, it's called Below the Stairs, uh, Servant Life in oh. sort of Downton Abbey mansions. Or that sounds fantastic. Something along those lines. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. What about you, Anne-Marie? I am just finishing that first book in the trilogy, um, Regeneration. So I'm looking forward to starting the second book. And there is a book um, about reading well. And I think it's Karen Pryor Swallow. And I have it. 
and this summer in order to read the first essay, which is about the virtue of prudence. She examines the um, virtues by way of books. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. So she starts with uh, Tom Jones, which was a book I had oh, not read. So I read, I slogged through three volumes of Tom Jones this There's summer in Tom order Jones. to read yep. the essay on Prudence. I'm about to start that, and I'm okay. looking forward to what she has to say about that. How about you, Carrie? What are you reading? I'm still going back and forth between my very light Nick Hornby fever pitch <laughs> and a little bit heavier Robert Wright, Why Buddhism is True. So flipping back and forth depending on the night. And then some New York Times crossword puzzles when I'm just not in the mood to read. <laughs> wow. I like the spelling bee. Well, also fun. Anyway, okay. Well, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. <laughs> <laughs>